0: welcome to lecture seven part a culturally congruent communication my name is Avita, and i'll be presenting this lecture content to you so this is part a part one of three topics so we're just going to start off with a brief definition of culture culture is a word commonly used to describe the learned patterns of perceiving interpreting and adapting to the world There is not really one agreed upon definition of culture and culture can certainly change depending on what discipline you're in, sociology, compared to even psychology. These patterns, however, develop, so the patterns of how we perceive and interpret our world develop within the context of a group of community. So culture typically exists of unconscious, so patterns that we're not necessarily aware of that encourage individuals to expect everyone to do and behave in similar patterns or customs. So because of culture we have subconscious expectations of how others should behave. There are two types of cultures we have around us. A large culture. Now a large culture is one that has extensive membership. So this could be the culture of being Australian. And considerable impact upon its members in all aspects of life. So some examples of large cultures are religion, lifestyle, even sexual orientation. Now a small culture is one that has a much smaller amount of membership and usually affects the lives of members only when they're fulfilling those roles. So this could be a role you have at work, a sports team or a leisure group. Now, what I mean by only when you're fulfilling those roles, so large cultures are cultures that might affect you all the time. So your Australian culture, your Australian lifestyle might affect all different aspects of your life, whereas your role at work, say team leader, you're only really in that culture when you're at work, when you're fulfilling that role. Now, cultural identity is unique to every individual because we all have a range of large and small cultures that make us up. There is no one overall universal cultural identity. Your culture is made up of a range of different large and small cultures. Identities are related, sorry, the identities develop, which are related to groups, values, traditions, beliefs, and expectations. And all different groups have different values, beliefs, expectations. Your family groups, sporting groups, special interest groups, religious groups, activity groups, this goes on. Now, in order for the health professional to achieve culturally congruent communication, meaning culturally effective communication, communication that is effective across different cultures. It is primarily important that the health professional understands that cultures differ and that every person has diverse experiences, worldviews, beliefs, attitudes, and values. And this is based on a range of different large and small cultures. Especially important is that everyone has diverse beliefs, experiences and attitudes in relation to people who are in a position of more power and privilege. And working as a health professional, sometimes that can be seen as you are in a position of power compared to clients or patients. So that's why culturally congruent communication is very important for health professionals to break down those walls. Health professionals should practice cultural safety, and that is that all diverse groups, regardless of their large or small cultures, age, gender, sexual preferences, disability, what have you, that they are all embraced within the health professions, that there is no judgment and the health professional is open to all individuals of all cultures. To achieve cultural safety, the health professional should be aware of factors that might impact this, and power prejudice and attitudes in the health professions can negatively impact health service outcomes. In cultural safety, everyone is considered to be unique, and the health professional empowers every individual, no matter what their background or culture is. Cultural safety and a culturally safe environment that provides opportunities the person who is seeking the health support it provides opportunities and empowers them to control their own outcomes and what this means is when they feel that they are respected and on a more equal level with their health professional this empowers them to engage in the healing process rather than just being a passive recipient Health professionals should be aware, though, that unless born into a particular culture, it is sometimes impossible to be completely cultural competent. And it can also be arrogant to consider that you might be. If you have familiarity with a particular culture, to consider yourself completely competent with that culture might be a bit arrogant. Unless born into it, it might be impossible to ever achieve achieve complete competence. But I'm saying complete competence. There might still be miscommunication between cultures, but a level of competence can still be achieved. And regardless of their level of competence, the health professional must be open to and accepting of different cultures that they encounter during practice. Culturally competent communication involves the health professional being aware of, sensitive to, and appreciative of the cultural variations common among individuals and groups. So, this model of culturally competent communication, I'm going to take you through the important steps. Um, and what these different parts of this model mean but you'll see when you're looking at this bow, there are three main parts here there is the individual in the middle there are these parts to the left which we call the intrinsic factors and these parts to the right which are the extrinsic or external factors so let's go through what this means firstly we'll start with the figure in the middle the central pivotal part is the health professional So this is a model of the health professional achieving culturally competent communication. And at the very center is the health professional who has this responsibility to deliver cultural competence in their practice. So we can see there are a few different um, descriptors here of the health professional, that they are motivated to achieve cultural competence, that they are humble, they're able to act They're self- and other-aware, expectant, respectful, and open. So what do these mean? Firstly, they're motivated to display culturally competent characteristics. They're motivated to engage in this process of achieving cultural competence. They're self-aware, meaning they're aware of their own attitudes and beliefs to other cultures and groups. They're other-aware, so they're aware that other people have different attitudes and beliefs. They are importantly humble. No one person or culture is better than another. They hopefully expect positive communication outcomes. They work in such a way that they expect to achieve cultural competence with the other person. And importantly, they demonstrate respectful attitudes and behaviors. They respect the beliefs and attitudes and behaviors associated with different cultures. Such characteristics like this can encourage and develop cultural competence. Now, surrounding the figure in that model are groups that might influence this individual. And these groups influence the individual's ability to achieve culturally competent communication. And these are things like perhaps their family. So whether cultural competence is encouraging their family, wider society that they live in, um, their particular roles So expected roles that they play, organizations, uh, their peers. So basically the groups surrounding the individual that might impact how they approach different cultures. Do they have culturally aware peers? Uh, Do their peers encourage them to engage with other cultures? Now on the left hand side of the boat are the intrinsic factors. And this is the intrinsic factors um, that the health professional might focus on also with themselves, but intrinsic factors with other cultures. So firstly, the intrinsic factor is the health professional's own culture, their own ethnicity and physical appearance, and their own personality traits. External factors are factors that guide the health professional's behaviour, but they're external to the health professional. Now, these are things like policies, government organisations, non-government organisations. What do these organisations say about culturally competent communication? The norms and expectations of communication are an underlying component. What this means is the health professional themselves are guided, whether aware of it or not, by their own norms that they have for themselves and they're surrounded by, the norms of their family members, attitudes of their family members, attitudes of media, attitudes of peers, attitudes of organizations, policies. All of these norms and expectations are an underlying component in this model and they affect all elements and features. Other elements that can affect culturally competent communication, so language, verbal and nonverbal behaviors have very different meanings among people from even same and different cultures, and we would have covered some of the nonverbal behaviors in week 4. Understanding context. So the context you're talking to an an individual in, so whether they're in a private practice or a private room or whether they're in a hospital, can have an effect on your communication as well. So people from different cultures might respond differently depending on the context the communication is taking place. And another element to be aware of is ethnocentricity. When one believes that their particular method of approaching a situation is superior. And this could be quite common in health pre- pre- professionals. There's a bit of an underlying pervasive idea that people have the best way of knowing how to approach others. And sometimes we just need to be a bit open. For example, or we might feel the best way in our culture is to comfort somebody when feeling sad, maybe by placing a hand on their shoulder. But that might not be appropriate communication practices in other cultures. So ethnocentricity is something to just be aware of, that your idea of what's best might not always be shared. In situations that present cultural differences, it is important to accept and appreciate diversity. If the health professional merely recognises that there is a difference, this is not accepting and appreciating diversity and just recognising a difference can even create and further that distance. In addition to the differences, perception and appreciation of similarities, not just differences will promote connection. So what do you and the other cultures have that is similar, similar traits? So cultural differences, however, don't only just differ between people from different countries. We can find cultural differences between people living in different parts across Australia, people living in metropolitan cities compared to regional and rural areas. So each individual, whether it's across country or even within, is different. And the health professional must try to avoid applying their own cultural assumptions and expectations to others. So strategies for achieving culturally competent communication, we've already discussed self-awareness. Evaluate your own personal and individual cultural values, beliefs, and traditions. And become aware of personal biases that you may have. It is better to acknowledge and reflect on why you have these biases rather than denying you have any at all. That you commit yourself to strategies to communicating with other people from different cultures you commit yourself to understanding differences. And exposure and learning. You are exposed to people from different cultures. You become familiar with different cultures. That you acknowledge that there is a difference. Don't prepare, pretend that you are all from the same culture. You invest time when doing this. You invest time to negotiate meaning and ensure an understanding. So invest time in individuals that come from different cultures. You anticipate that there may be difficulties and if you anticipate that there may be difficulties this might allow you to put in strategies that can overcome these difficulties before they are exacerbated and one strategy could be that you organize an interpreter to be there from the beginning now there are two different ways you could use an interpreter Simultaneous interpretation is the interpreter translates information while it's being presented. Commonly simultaneous is when you see a speech on TV and little presenters in the corner. Or sequential, the speaker presents a portion of information and the interpreter translates. It can be transliteration where exact translation of each word is given or interpretation. There is translation of meaning regardless of the exact words that are said. I will skip over the essential steps of using an interpreter, but the best part to know is that it's a strategy you can put in in place should you foresee any possible cultural difficulties. So in summary, a health professional can never understand a culture completely unless they are born into it and are part of it. It is important that health professionals are open to and accepting of the different cultures encountered during practice. And culturally competent communication can be better achieved by considering the model that we discussed during this lecture and investing time to become self and other aware. And one way to do this perhaps is have a go at the activity on the next slide. Consider your beliefs and attitudes to these questions. And I'll let you do this in your own time. You don't need to know my attitudes and beliefs just now. (laughs) Thank you very much for listening to Part A. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Part B and C of HEALT 1113, Week 7. Part B is Communicating with Indigenous Persons, and Part C is Remote Communication. So, we'll begin with Communicating with Indigenous Persons. Now, just a disclaimer before I begin I am not an expert in Indigenous cultures. I approach these discussions with sensitivity, and I am ever mindful and aware that as much as I appreciate this culture, I am not part of this culture. In this lecture, I will use the term Indigenous Peoples and Persons to refer to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Still, the term Indigenous Peoples can also refer to Indigenous Peoples of any land. The four R's for reconciliation. The Indigenous Allied Health of Australia suggests that there are four relevant words and related actions to assist anyone relating to Indigenous people. Therefore, these four R's are particularly important concepts for health professionals to remember when we communicate with Indigenous peoples. The first R is remember. Remember the events of a history that have created challenging and unacceptable circumstances for Indigenous peoples. The aim is not to create a sense of guilt in the health professional, but to understand and become aware of historical realities. The second R is reflecting. Remembering is vital, but this must be accompanied by reflection. Reflection about these events produces understanding and the ability to demonstrate respect and empathy. This can aid development of trust, and trust is essential when working with Indigenous populations. Recognise. It is important to recognise the resilience of Indigenous peoples. These are old cultures that have adapted to the environment and continue to exist to this day, showing that these cultures are incredibly resilient. Respond. An appropriate response requires constant collaborative practice, reflecting equality and true reconciliation. Remembering, reflecting and recognising have the potential to respond in a person-centred and culturally competent way. As we discussed in part A, each individual is a member of many different groups that have a unique culture. Nationality provides a particular identity with values, traditions, beliefs and expectations that are specific to that particular nation. Now Indigenous peoples also have unique identities that reflect their original ethnicity, group or nation. So they have two national identities. The nationality, they live in contemporary society, but also unique identities that reflect their original ethnicity. So Indigenous cultures continue to adapt to influences upon themselves or their community. So they adapt while also maintaining their original culture. So it really is um, two large cultures here influencing Indigenous persons. Stereotyping Indigenous peoples based on either contemporary or original cultures is also a threat. When working with Indigenous peoples, we work to create culturally effective interactions. We understand the concept of cultural safety that was previously discussed, so providing a safe environment for their culture. We respect, support and empower cultural identities. We acknowledge and accept that our own values and beliefs might be different to those of Indigenous persons. The lack of cultural safety exists when any individual behaves in a manner that challenges, denies, demeans, diminishes or disempowers a cultural identity. The importance of history is particularly important to um, consider when working with Indigenous populations. So considering pre-contact and post-contact, in pre-contact, what was the Indigenous culture like pre-European contact? What has the culture experienced since European contact? Particularly in Australia, in many places, contact has resulted in violence, devastation through loss of access, and introduced diseases or deliberate attempts to even kill and control Indigenous peoples. Knowledge and understanding of pre and post contact history is important in the creation of culturally appropriate healthcare. Pages 219 to 222 of your text offer an excellent overview of cultural differences and considerations that may arise. However, this is a comprehensive table, so I'm not going to go over it in this audio, but I'll just give a highlight of some considerations that um, that are included. So firstly, that communication styles may vary. Eye contact contact in Indigenous cultures may be a sign of disrespect, whereas for other cultures, eye contact is a sign of attentive listening. The notion of family may differ. Brothers, sisters, aunties, different terms may not refer to blood relatives. Kinship obligations. For some Indigenous cultures, kinship obligations may result in large numbers of people visiting or accompanying the patient in hospital or healthcare. For many rural and remote Indigenous peoples, English may actually be a second, third or even fourth language and they may require an interpreter. Spirituality is another factor to consider. Are there special customs that need to be adhered to throughout their health care? How can we be sensitive to those customs? And traditional methods of managing illness. Inclusion of some traditional practices can contribute to physical, emotional, psychological and spiritual comfort for the Indigenous person. So, factors that contribute to effective communication. Some considerations include direct and straightforward professional manner could be considered offensive when discussing sensitive information. Some questions may be considered offensive. You need to take time to establish trust with the Indigenous person, provide time for discussion, and importantly, also be comfortable with the silence. Many Indigenous peoples may have experiences that suggest that non-Indigenous health professionals have limited knowledge or lack interest in Indigenous cultures. The following are causes of culturally incompetent communication. The presence of stereotypes and preconceptions when meeting Indigenous peoples in healthcare. A failure to establish a sense of equality and collaboration. So the person seeking healthcare feels disempowered. A failure to explore the actual meanings of words and behaviours for both parties. A failure to understand that some Indigenous peoples provide the answer they believe the health professional desires. So more discussion and um, appropriate discussion might be needed. So, finally, other barriers to culturally competent communication the failure to develop trust and listen patiently, the failure to observe and explore nonverbal behaviors, the failure to clarify understanding. So, if they do actually use terms and symbols that um, are not culture or do not translate across culture, clarify the meaning. Responses that are cliches, um, if the person is just saying what they believe the health professional wants them to hear, and use of inappropriate pamphlets or written information. Using information with visual images and no technical jargon and terms is important when communicating with most people seeking assistance, especially Indigenous persons. Finally, this is Part C of Lecture 7, H-E-A-L-T 1113. In Part C, we will now discuss remote communication. Remote communication quite simply refers to communication that is not face-to-face. Traditionally, written reports and telephones have communicated information about appointments, expectations, interventions, results, needs, future plans, and other various issues related to the persons. However, more modern technology has also increased the need for us to reconsider and approach remote communication, advantages of remote communication and disadvantages. So more modern technology could include video conferences, teleconferences, discussions over the internet, so computer mediated communication. Each form of different remote communication has specific characteristics, and people respond differently to these characteristics. So this chapter includes a table of the characteristics of remote forms of communication. So I'm just going to give you a quick overview of the table. So some characteristics discussed here are things like convenience, um, availability, security, legally binding so we have notation of, yes, that characteristic is present, D depends, N not usually. So let's just consider the convenience. So a telephone, yes, it's convenient. Email's convenient. Networking sites are convenient. A written report might depend um, on where it is being written. Um, security. So Telephone. Are we, do we consider it secure? Sometimes. It depends, I guess. Um, but video, emailing and networking sites certainly don't necessarily offer the security. So there are all different characteristics associated with these remote forms of communication. Some characteristics can be assured, um, while others cannot. So legally binding um, um what you say on the telephone might depend and not be as legally binding as an email is. So principles that govern professional remote communication, polite forms of words and constructions, formal language and expression, clear expectations of any jargon or technical terms, correct spelling and grammar, always check before sending, and concise, accurate and clear statements, one idea to one sentence. Avoid, in remote communication, abrupt, impolite messages. Colloquial or everyday expressions. Colloquialism such as, it's too small to swing a cat in here. My mum used to always say that. Odd one. Unexplained use of jargon, so technical terms without explaining. Spelling and grammatical errors and long and rambling sentences. So some remote forms of communication we discussed, we have documentation. This can include written reports, medical records, and letters, telephones, which now can include voicemail, and answering service, or also short messaging services, or SMSs, videos, teleconferencing, and Skype, the internet, and also online collaboration tools, such as chat rooms, Wiki spaces and social networking sites. So in documentation, some important um, things to consider. Consider the audience and the reader. Who is reading the document that you are preparing? Is it the person seeking health um, support or another health professional? Use only commonly known abbreviations, but also be aware that different health professions use different abbreviations. So a registered nurse um, consulting with a clinical psychologist might have different terms for different things. Formatting. Some health professions do have requirements for written documents and your textbook offers you some um, guidelines for this. Points to remember. Always distinguish between fact and opinion and always sign the letter. Telephone allows for suprasegmental features to be present, meaning it allows for more voice intonation. So you can say, and there's always, um, you know, that... That sarcasm isn't translated online, well, because we can't hear somebody speaking, whereas the telephone allows for more personal features to be there. Strategies for using the telephone include how to answer a call and a how even to make a call. And these will sound like pretty straightforward things, but using a call for proper communication and health professionals that you name your own name and the name of the health service. How to make a call that you prepare for the call. You gather documents, you don't keep the person waiting online while you look the documents up. A comprehensive list of strategies for this can also be found in your text. A short messaging service, this is very commonly used these days, health professionals send their clients SMSs reminding them of an appointment. Firstly, use the name of the person receiving the text, so the person knows they've got the right text. Avoid abbreviations, state your point clearly, and use your own name and contact at the end, who they can contact if something changes. Same principles apply for leaving a telephone message, the name of service, what their instructions are. Communicating via teleconference, so telephones going the next step adding in your face, is beneficial official for networking, so many people who might be attending the call at once, health professionals in remote settings, saving time and reducing travel costs, but also importantly to allow nonverbal behaviours to become present in these interactions. So if you do have a teleconference, some strategies for good communication across these group conferences is to allow time for all individuals to initially introduce themselves and their roles. If the individuals are known, Name those present and restrict introductory details. So everyone in the room should always just be introduced. Name who was there. So, um, in a video conference, include all connected sites in the discussion. Ask for confirmation of visual and auditory and cognitive understanding, particularly important visual if you are presenting a screen or visual information that all sites can see. Um, Repeat anything that is not in range of the microphone, especially important during question time. And when finishing, say goodbye to each site separately. Now, onto the internet. The internet is becoming more and more commonly used for health professionals' remote communication. E-therapy especially is increasing in population. So using the internet, whether it is chat rooms or email, Most importantly, it should be reminded that they are never private nor secure. No, not never private, but they are neither private nor secure. So let's first consider emails. So the strategies and considerations when sending an email in the health professions is vast. And that's also because, like we discussed with SMSs and written word, that the tone may not translate But what's also important is that emails can be forwarded anywhere at any time so you need to be aware of that what you put in an email could be available for other people to see for a list of considerations when emailing clients the textbook also goes into a quite detailed comprehensive list but some considerations include be careful to avoid being abrupt Explain critical comments carefully and politely. Reduce the size of large attachments and ensure the email is going to the right person before sending. I am a habitual checker that I'm sending it to the right person. And finally, online collaboration tools, social networking sites, chat rooms, wikispaces. Social networking sites. Who has access to these sites and who can view you? And this is something very important for all health professionals to consider and also yourself as budding health professionals. There are implications for use of these sites for health professionals. Social media is not private and you are not anonymous. If you were to look at your profile right now, say Facebook, Instagram, what have you, what does your profile say about you? does your profile convey a health professional and a professional in the sense every sense of the word and if it doesn't well you might want to consider what outcomes could that have for you importantly i would encourage everybody who is coming into the field of health profession to consider privatizing their online space, their online identity, but also consider pages that you do like. When you, what does your profile say about you? This isn't just your profile picture. What pages do you like? Do you like pages that could be considered offensive? Could they be considered offensive if you were to have a client from that particular culture? So important factors to keep in mind are your online presence as a health professional and what your online presence says about you. And I know that was a bit of a downer at the end of this, but it is important and it's important to start thinking about now, particularly when you're going into prac, ensure that your presence is private. Okay, so that concludes lecture seven.